We are in the Psalms as Labor Day, I can't, I, it's hard for me to say that, I can't believe it's already Labor Day weekend. As Labor Day weekend is upon us and as we say goodbye to summer and hello to the autumn season, we're actually ending our brief foray into the book of Psalms. And I hope we've appreciated adding these ancient songs of the faith to the playlists of our lives. Over these last few weeks in this beloved prayer book, I, I think we've witnessed again and again how the Psalms express a treasure trove of emotion be it great joy or deep sadness, righteous anger or contrite penitence, ongoing lament or even repeated thanksgiving, the full spectrum of the human condition is on display in these songs. And and as I've said repeatedly, this is one of the blessings of the book of Psalms. It gives voice to our emotions. Now, if you've been with us, one of the challenges that we've given is even though we can't get through at this time all 150 psalms, we've just done a little bit of a sampling, we've been giving you a reading schedule, it's still in there, to read through all 150 of these songs by the end of the summer, by the next, in the next two weeks. And because of that, you may have encountered some songs that we haven't looked at on Sunday where let's just say the expression of emotion is a little intense, even more intense. And at times what you read may even shock or surprise you that it's in the Bible or that this is something that's being asked for. And I just want to briefly comment on that, that the Psalms give voice to our emotions, but it's very important we understand that the Psalms don't always validate where our feelings take us. And I think that helps when we come to some of the hard, shocking edges of some of these songs. The Psalms aren't necessarily validating where our feelings take us, but in giving voice to our emotions, they do give us permission to express our feelings. All of them. All of what we feel in the presence of God our Father without shame or apology. And what we're going to see this morning is this trend of deeply wrestling with the mysteries of life through the honest relief of emotion continues as we take in the rhythm and verse this morning of Psalm 130. When you open up to your Bible in just a moment, you're going to see it's called a Psalm of Ascents. A-S-C-E-N-T-S, Psalm of Ascents. Because these lyrics would have been sung or recited by pilgrims traveling up the road to Jerusalem for one of the three annual sacred festivals outlined in the book of Deuteronomy. For an Israelite, Jerusalem was home, the place where the temple could be found and therefore the epicenter of where the Lord was present to and for his people. And I want to ask Dave Galley to come forward as he's going to read to us from Psalm 130. And as he's coming forward, Psalm 130 is the first of a few psalms we're going to look at in these next three weeks that center around this theme, the theme of hope. Hope is a vital and necessary component of our existence. Hope gives us the strength to keep going through the tough times. Hope gives life joy and perspective in the good times. But the question I want you to focus on as Dave reads to us from Psalm 130 is this. Where does our hope come from? Dave? Thank you. It's on. All right. Um, Please open your pew Bibles if you'd like to page 431. Out of the depths I cry to you, Lord. Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to to my cry of mercy. If you, Lord, kept a record of sins, Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness, so that we can, with reverence, serve you. I wait for the Lord. My whole being waits. And in his word I put my hope. I wait for the Lord more than the watchmen wait for the morning more than the watchmen wait for the morning. Israel, put your hope in the Lord, for with the Lord is unfailing love, and with him is full redemption. 
He himself will redeem Israel from all their sins. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Keep those Bibles open. Keep those Bibles open as we immerse ourselves in the, in the theme of hope. And again, I ask you, where does our hope come from? Where does our hope come from? Some might answer, as with the saying, that hope springs from within. The idea being, if you think about it, that hope is something we generate ourselves. We muster up things to hope for, and out of all that mustering, hope becomes manifest in our lives. The philosopher Plato suspiciously perceived any talk of hope through this lens. For Plato, hope is nothing more than the projection of our desired ends in order that an individual might survive the threat or trauma that they're facing. It's a little bit of a mouthful. Let me say that again. For Plato, hope was nothing more than the projection of our desired ends in order that an individual might survive the threat or trauma they're facing. In other words, understood in this way, our hope is not real. Hope is merely a mind game we play on ourselves, a convenient psychological crutch to support our battered spirits until we can return to a more rational state of mind. Is hope just a mind game we play? Does our hope come from within ourselves? Plato has his answer, and as you heard, the songwriter of Psalm 130 has another. The psalmist declares from the very get-go that hope emerges out of the depths. De profundis, that's Latin. The Latin translation of these first few words of this sacred poem. Gifted writers like Oscar Wilde, Alfred Lord Tennyson, or Dorothy Parker have titled some of their own works after this expression of human restlessness and yearning. De profundis, out of the depths. Out of the depths I cry to you, Lord. What are the depths to which the psalmist is referring? The depths is an allusion to the ocean. And throughout the Bible, the ocean is a metaphor for chaos. The image invokes great distress, the great distress, the spiritual tsunami that occurs when we truly confront how broken and lost this world is. In other words, the depths is when life feels like hell because due to the chaos and brokenness of this world, life is hell. When you hit rock bottom, when you face the truth, because there's nowhere else to go anymore, you've reached the depths. And if you have your Bibles open, you'll see the writer of this song has clearly run aground because notice where he lands ultimately defines the depths he is experiencing. You have to read it carefully, but you'll see the, the psalmist doesn't blame others. He doesn't blame the way he was brought up for where he finds himself. The psalmist doesn't fault his environment, the circumstances of his life for getting him into this mess. The psalmist knows good and well the source of his troubles. And it's the accumulated burden of his sin. That's a word that we don't talk about in church very much. Sin. It's, it's a word that is controversial, and it should be, because it's a problem. And, and what the psalmist gives us here with this image of out of the depths is a way, I think, to think about sin, to understand sin in a way that might be helpful, a different way of looking at it. Through this image of out of the depths, think of our lives as ships that set sail 
with the intention of going further and further beyond the horizon. And yet, sin is the, re the reality that we are directionally challenged. And we always go the wrong way. We don't follow the wind. We resist and rage against the current. Again and again, this is what happens so that we never make it out of the harbor. If we create our own compass, rather than setting our course by the light of the sun, then we are destined to eventually end up shipwrecked. To be clear, the Bible doesn't say we deserve every misfortune that comes our way. Every bad thing we experience cannot be traced back to a specific sin of our own. But the Bible does say that every bad thing we experience, all the brokenness of this world, can be traced back to someone's specific sin, to the reality of sin in our lives. And notice in this song, the psalmist not only recognizes his sinfulness as the source of his own personal shipwreck, he also affirms being direct, that being directionally challenged in a spiritual sense is a universal problem. That sin in some way or another is at the root of all of our misery. He acknowledges this when he asks the question, if you, O Lord, kept a record of sins, O Lord, who could stand? This is the depth these are the depths. This is the pervasiveness of the problem before us. One way or another, the world around us remains sick and broken because we just keep infecting each other. Because we are just a harbor that's filled up with a bunch of wrecked ships. And the psalmist, if that image doesn't strike us, gives us another one, one that I think all of us can relate to, to, to really to reflect again the reality of our circumstances, the depths we're in. And the, and the contrast of where he wants to go, it's the image of a ledger. Now, we live in a modern age, so most of the stuff we do on computer, but there was a time before computers where there were, things were recorded in a ledger, a book. And in the book, you would keep track of expenses, keep track of different things. And on one side, you'd add up all the credits, and on the other side, you'd add up all the debits. And if you're not an accountant, if you don't do this on a regular, balance things on a regular basis, when you line up all the credits and on the other side you add up all the debits, you have to kind of take an inventory of that. And if your credits exceed your debits, then your final number is in the black. That's good. But if your debits exceed your credits, then you have red ink. And the basic understanding that you, could, you probably all of us have is you don't want red ink. You don't want to see red ink. Well, the psalmist says in asking his question, he declares, in fact, that we all have ledgers. And the ledgers of our lives are full of red ink. None of us before God have a positive balance. Paul will say no one, not one. And we ignore or deny this reality to our peril. Again, back to our image of a ship, it's like taking to sea on a vessel filled with holes. One that's prone to crash and in the meantime is gradually filling with water. If we stay in the depths of this chaos, we will slowly drown in our iniquity. Ultimately fighting for and losing the air we need to breathe because we're choking, we're drowning on the guilt, the shame, the fear that comes not only with our sin, but the sin of this world. And yet the psalmist gives us a contrast. If we face the depths, if we face the chaos, the brokenness in which we find ourselves empty and exhausted, if we die to ourselves, die to those things we could not wait to consume or possess, if we die to our unbridled desire to have the world our way, 
if we die to any residual belief that we can barter some kind of solution with God, if we die to ourselves, the breakthrough can come. The breakthrough can come, the realization that hope is not something we can manifest on our own. We cannot make or produce hope. Did you ever think about that? We cannot make or produce hope. We are given hope, and hope rises out of the depths. Hope rises out of the depths in answer to the question we face in the depths of our sin. If you, Lord, kept a record of sins, Lord, who could stand? Hope rises out of the answer to this question when the psalmist sings, but with you, there is forgiveness. Out of the depths of the shipwreck that is sin and death, the starting point of hope is not what I, what we can do, but what God does for us. The foundation upon which all our hope is built is forgiveness, God's forgiveness in us in Jesus Christ. Beloved, hear this because this is foundational. Our hope is built as we sing on nothing less than Jesus Christ's righteousness. There is no hope without the forgiveness of God. Everything else that we hope for comes from what this, the psalmist declares. The foundation of our hope is that God forgives us of our sin. That the ledger of our lives is clear. That our God keeps no record of our sins. That instead of being crushed by the red ink of all of our debts, we have been covered by the blood of Christ. Hope rises when we experience the forgiveness of God. But have we experienced the forgiveness of God? I ask this as I look, it would seem I'm preaching to the choir. Most of you I know, some of you I would at least guess that you've had some exposure to this faith. And, and so in one sense to ask, have we experienced the forgiveness of God is like, well, we're here. And yet the reality is we may say we understand the forgiveness of God. We may say we understand how it works. We might say we've even received the forgiveness of God as an act of faith. But have we experienced the forgiveness of God? Allowing the forgiveness of God to change and shape how we live. See, I find inside and outside of the church, many people fall into one of two camps, sometimes both. On the one hand, some of us struggle with experiencing God's mercy because we just keep telling ourselves, God can't forgive me. God can't forgive me. Because we perceive our sins are too great, because we perceive our sins are too many, we remain so fixated on the size of our sin, we never allow ourselves to experience the freedom of God's forgiveness. Maybe that speaks to you today. You understand how forgiveness works. By faith, you believe, you say, in God's forgiveness. But are you experiencing the freedom of God's forgiveness in your life? Some of us struggle with experiencing God's mercy because we just keep telling ourselves, God can't forgive me. And on the other hand, some of us have a hard time experiencing God's mercy because we just keep telling ourselves, God can't forgive them. Some of us are stenographers of sin. Going back to our ledger example, we, we can't experience, we have a hard time experiencing God's mercy because we spend half of our lives putting down every fault of others and then the other half of our lives reading back them, those faults to each person. 
And we're never able to experience the peace of God's pardon. Are you here today as a stenographer of sin? You understand how forgiveness works. You believe that God forgives us, and yet you just keep writing down in that ledger that God says doesn't exist. Beloved, what I'm trying to get at is the kind of thought I think the psalmist is, getting, is provoking us through. The kind of thought elicited by hope isn't directed towards ourselves. And both of these, these ways of thinking are about thinking towards ourselves. It's, again, looking for hope from within. The kind of thought elicited by hope isn't directed towards ourselves, remaining continually focused on what we've done or left undone or what others have done or failed to do. You see, thoughts like these keep us in the depths because they cycle back and forth between narcissism, narcissism on the one hand this self-absorption where we say to ourselves, well, at least I'm not as bad a sinner as them. And by the way, there's no such thing as a good sinner. <laughs> the idea of a better sinner is an oxymoron. Well, I'm, least as not, I'm not as bad a sinner as them. Well, then you're a better sinner. Good for you. So on the one hand, we cycle back and forth between narcissism, this self-absorption of, well, at least I'm not as bad a sinner as them, or we rotate the other way to a place of, of deep despair, self-despair, depression, where we say, my sins, you don't know, you don't understand what I've done, what I've failed to do. You don't get it. It's so much worse than the sins of others. The lines I've crossed, you don't get it. They can't be erased. The things I've done can't be forgiven. Beloved, hope rises as we experience the forgiveness of God. Hope rises not by looking inward, but by looking upward. The psalmist declares, in his word, I put my hope. We hear this and perhaps our first thought when the psalmist says, in his word, I put my hope, is that he means scripture. The songwriter puts his hope in what the Bible says. Now, while the Torah would have been part of the poet's thought. The scriptures would have been part of the poet's thought. What he's invoking here is so much bigger. What he's invoking here is so much more than the words on the page right in front of us. The Hebrew word that's used here for word is word, but it's also deed, event. The psalmist, when he says, in his word I put my hope, is evoking something much bigger. And to appreciate it, let me repeat something I've said I know in previous sermons. Something about words. We use words all the time, but they don't always mean anything, right? We have a lot of empty talk in our lives. If we troll the internet or turn on the radio for a little while, we'll notice how many words are thrown around or thrown away so carelessly. We like to say, because it's true, talk is cheap when it comes out of our mouths. And, and as an aside, this, by the way, this just this reality about talk, human speech, is, is one of those day-to-day -day reflections of the depths of the reality of sin in our lives, isn't it? And what I mean by that is, don't we deep down sense, don't we deep down know that what a person says ought to line up with what they do? Don't we instinctively feel that's the way it's supposed to be, that what someone says ought to line up with what a person does? That's what we would call perfect integrity, right? Right? And yet no one meets that standard, do they? No one except God. This is what the psalmist is getting at when he says, in his word I put my hope. Whatever God says happens. Word and deed with God are inseparable. 
With our Lord, there is no empty talk. There is no wasted speech. After all, this is the God who spoke creation into existence. This is the God who doesn't just make promises to forgive, to save us. This is the word made flesh, actualizing our redemption, our reconciliation, our resurrection through blood, sweat, and tears. The psalmist looks upward, not inward, because hope rises when we look to God. And as the songwriter focuses on the Lord, he sees God for who he is. He sees God for who he is. Who do we see when we look at the Lord? Again, this is another very thematic question we've come to in sermons in the past, but it's, a, it's such a foundational one. Who do we see when we look at the Lord? Because what we see, how we understand and see God shapes so everything else. Who do we see when we look at the Lord? You know, it's interesting when you get into, I don't know if you've fallen into this space. It happens in Bible studies. It happens sometimes in sermons. It happens even in, in classes at school or even just in coffee shop conversations. You know, we've been trained. We sort of think this way that when we talk about the reality of God and we talk about the existence of God, when God is perceived, do you ever notice that when we talk about God, our description of his attributes gets all philosophical? And to be honest, it gets a little sterile. Oh, we want to talk about, does God exist? Is God real? Well, then we must talk about God's omnipotence. We must talk about God's omniscience. We must talk about God's immutability. And yet what's fascinating to me is notice the psalmist, as the psalmist looks up and his hope rises out of the depths, he perceives God not in terms of any philosophical categories. He perceives God in, through one attribute, the predominant character feature that, by the way, the Bible points to again and again. And again, it's a Hebrew word, a big one, hesed. The psalmist says, put your hope in the Lord, for with the Lord is unfailing love. The hesed of God, the steadfast, unfailing love of God, that aspect of the person of God is what the poet is depending on. Beloved, when we know God, when we depend upon God because of his hesed, his steadfast and unfailing love, we no longer look inward. We look up to the one in whom, as the psalmist sings, there is forgiveness. We look up to our Father who himself, through his one and only Son, as the psalmist sings, redeems us from all of our sins. It's in looking up and embracing the steadfast, unfailing, the hesed love of God that moves Paul to write without any reservation. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Man, that is a provocative, bold statement. But Paul looks up, not in, and he sees who God is. And he says there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Believers in Christ are not condemned. We feel condemned, but we are not condemned. People tell us we're condemned, but we are not condemned. The devil says we're condemned, but we are not condemned. God has the last word and his last word for us. The psalmist is singing for this reason. His last word for us is not a word of condemnation. It is not a word of death. It is the word of life. God our Father sees our sins, yes, all of them. And God our Father pardons them, yes, all of them. 
He doesn't just dismiss our sin. He doesn't just ignore the brokenness, all the bad stuff of this world as if it doesn't exist. God embraces the consequences of our sin, all of it. And God pays the price so we don't have to. God rights the wrongs because we can't do it on our own. Because of his unfailing love, there is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus and therefore hope rises. My brothers and sisters, when we repeat and internalize these truths, these truths I've just spoken out loud, a new cycle of thought is created in our lives. Looking upward rather than inward, rather than the vicious cycle back and forth between narcissism or depression, hope gives us a new rhythm. And it's a rhythm, by the way, that's spelled out for us in the very words that Jesus taught us to pray. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. When we consciously live when we truly experience the reality of our complete forgiveness in Christ, we cannot withhold sharing this level of forgiveness with others. And the hope born of forgiveness becomes a catalyst, lifting us up and moving us forward in our lives. If you're not growing, if you don't feel that power not a power that you can manifest. If you're not moving forward, is it because you haven't experienced the most foundational thing in our lives, the basis upon which all other hopes rest, forgiveness? Are you still sitting in a place where you say, God can't forgive me? Are you sitting in a place where you say, God can't forgive them? All our hope is out of experiencing the forgiveness of God in Christ. In the first six verses, the songwriter describes his experience in hoping in the Lord. Notice in the last two verses, he invites us to join him in living out of this hope. But what does this look like? I mean, again, back to it, lots of us, we've done this this morning. We can define what hope is. We can all agree, I hope, on the concept of hope as it's been explained. But the feeling of hope Actually being hopeful, full of hope, is different. And again, inside and outside the church, what I see is not many people are experiencing the feeling of hope, the reality of hope in their lives. Why? Why is that? Because as the psalmist in this brief song hits upon again and again, is that truly knowing what hope is can only come by living out of the hope we have. How do we live out of the hope we have? Again, the psalmist paints a picture for us, and it's a beautiful picture. I love it, honestly. How do we live out of the hope we have? The psalmist says, by waiting on the Lord. I wait for the Lord, he sings. My whole being waits, and in his word, I put my hope. Interestingly, the words used here for wait and hope are the same. The Hebrew language doesn't separate hope in God from waiting on God. Hear that again. The Hebrew language doesn't separate hope in God from waiting on God. Biblically, hope is waiting with expectation. And the songwriter gives us another powerful image to capture what living in hope looks like. 
When he sings, my soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen wait for the morning. More than watchmen wait for the morning. If you were an ancient watchman, your task was to watch out, to watch over a military camp or city. You couldn't fall asleep or leave your post. Your job was to watch over that place until morning. Can you imagine how challenging, how exhausting this would be? It's the dead of night, the dead of night. It's so disturbingly quiet, you know what I'm talking about? It's so disturbingly quiet that every sound makes you jump. The temperature drops, so it's cold. You're alone, and your eyelids, man, they feel perpetually heavy. And and again, if any of us here have ever had to work a night or a graveyard shift, you can probably picture this pretty well. What gets you through the night? How do you do it? What gets you through the night? How do you endure all of this without falling asleep or just leaving your post? And he tells us, by watching while you wait, by watching while you wait, watching not just for if trouble or danger comes, no, watching while you wait, you're watching with the expectation for that moment. And if you've ever stayed up all night long, you know this moment I'm about to describe. You're watching while you're waiting for that moment when the stars begin to fade and all the blackness around you becomes navy blue and the first ray of light peaks over the horizon as the morning comes. Watchmen could endure the long night because they were waiting with expectation for the morning to come. It wasn't a question of if if the morning would come. They knew it was coming. They just had to wait for it to arrive. In the same way, beloved, living out of the hope we have is waiting with expectation. Waiting on God is living out of the hope we have in God's unfailing love, his hesed, the foundation of that hope, the centerpiece of that love, as I've expressed this morning, is God's forgiveness. But this is important. Understand this. We aren't waiting for God's forgiveness. Otherwise, we go back to where we started. We're not waiting for God's forgiveness. The experience of God's forgiveness is what gives us hope. And we experience that forgiveness by recognizing, by trusting in God's ongoing care and provision for us, by seeing and embracing his work of salvation in our lives now. This is why, by the way, the Israelites were told and would always recall and rehearse their history of salvation all the time. To remember, to never forget where their hope came from. The constancy of God's steadfast and unfailing love. Because of what the Lord did in the past, they waited in hope. It wasn't a question of if the Lord would work. It was just enduring until when the Lord would act. How did they make it through? By living out of the hope. The hope that's recorded elsewhere in Scripture. That though weeping may last for the night, joy comes in the morning or as the psalmist expresses it here by trusting that with the lord there is full redemption full redemption beloved if we're living out of hope we're waiting 
with expectation. And in that repetition of the phrase that the songwriter gives us, my soul waits for the Lord more than watchman for the morning, more than watchman for the morning. Even as we read those same words over again, we experience this hopeful waiting. We wait on God confidently, knowing the morning will come. Even if it feels like right now in our lives the night is going on forever, even if we find ourselves in whatever circumstances we're in tempted to fall asleep, even if what's before us makes us say, you know what, I'm out of here, I'm leaving my post. We keep watching because we know that hope is rising with the sun because we know God's answer, our Father's yes, his forgiveness, his salvation, his unfailing love in our lives has already been spoken And we will hear, we will experience the light of his mercy, the healing due of his salvation again. Maybe not today. Maybe not tomorrow. But hope is rising. And it will rise like the dawn of each new day. Part of my job as a pastor, I think, is to be transparent to you about how Christ is at work in my life. Like anyone else, you know, we set boundaries, but I think that part of my role trying through Christ at work in me to live into that integrity that we talked about, that integrity that I can't accomplish on my own, that what I say is reflected in what I'm doing. And I, and I want to try to bring this home for you practically by expressing to you how I'm interacting with this song in my life right now. My context for doing that, if you were not with us last week or you don't know, is last week was a really hard Sunday for me. Very dear friend of our family, close friend of mine, part of this ch- our church community, Ted Brown, um, went home to the Lord. He was just to turn 51, died of a massive heart attack, left a wife, two kids. And I have been walking in that space The service was yesterday, over 600 people here. And if I'm honest, and and for so many of you, thank you for prayers and hugs and so many things, just comments on Facebook. In my grief, I am in the depths. In my grief, I am in the depths. It is hell. Facing this tragedy, though, on my own, In these last couple of days, I can find, I can create no hope. I can find, I can create no hope. There's no hope that comes from within. I mean, I go to that place, I'll be on, and again, even as your pastor, I gotta confess, I've been tempted and tested. I go to that place where I'm angry with God. I go to that place where I wanna tell God, you don't know what you're doing. I go to that place where I wanna tell God, you know, I'm done with you. I'm done with you. For all that I can try to do on my own, all that that momentarily makes me feel good, if that's even the right word, there's no solace there. There's no hope there. I'm hopeless because I'm helpless. I'm hopeless because I'm helpless. And yet, if I allow myself to hit rock bottom, to stop pacing back and forth, to, start, to stop arguing and fighting, if I allow myself to hit rock bottom out of the depths as I confront what I don't want to confront, as I confront my own vulnerability, 
as I face my own dependency, as I encounter my own brokenness, hope rises. When I look up, rather than keep looking in, I see blessings. Even as I grieve, I see blessings. I see the gift of grace at work in my life. I see in this relationship with a person who is a dear friend that I've only known for four years of my life. I see in the intersection of how our lives came together as families, let alone as persons. I see, if this makes any sense to you, God's work of forgiveness through that. God's work of forgiveness on display in my life through that confluence of events. I see God's work of salvation through a friendship like that coming into my life. And in my profound gratitude, I begin to see as I look up a bigger picture of God's unfailing love. And it's out of this hope that rises I can wait with expectation. On my own, there is no hope, and my waiting is painful and pointless. What am I waiting for? What is there to wait for? But out of the depths, as hope rises, I can wait with expectation for what is on the other side of the horizon. Yes, right now and still to come, there will be pain in the night. There will be more challenges. There will be obstacles. There will be even more death in my life. But my hope, my waiting is not in vain. Because it's not a question of if. It's only a matter of when the joy of the morning will come. My friends, we live... And maybe these are the moments where I feel this more acutely. Maybe that's the bigger picture. We live in a world where there seems, often seems to be no real hope. Let's be assured this morning, the few, the proud, the many, that out of the depths of our brokenness, our sin, our pain, our suffering, our death, hope rises. When the going gets tough, when the path before us suddenly appears less certain, even when all seems well and we just find ourselves searching for greater meaning and purpose. From where does hope rise? On what foundation is our confidence built? On the goodness, the hesed, the unfailing love of a God who is our Father. A Father who is more willing to help us than we are willing to be helped. <laughs> A father who forgives us even when we weren't looking for it. And even when we still don't think forgiveness is possible. In an age where there's just more and more, and I'm speaking to the younger faces that I see out here, and I'm sorry if I, I ha hammer it on this, but I see it more and more in the generation coming up. In an age where growing skepticism and increasing cynicism is what's rising, hope has to rise higher. Let's listen, listen, and follow the psalmist as he enters into a space that the world cannot give, a space that allows for more than just the possibility of hope. There are lots of possibilities in my life, but the psalmist lets us enter into a space where the hope is a promise. How do we know God loves us? How do we know we are forgiven? Because we remember 
Because we tell each other again and again. We reenact every week through word and sacrament what God our Father has done in and through and for Israel and what God our Father has done in and through and for us through his Son, Jesus Christ. Beloved, our hope in Christ is not a dream of the future. Our hope in Christ is an anchor firmly set in the history of our past even as the glory of the cross and the victory of the resurrection continue to unfold in our present. God did what he said he would do and he will do what he says he will do. I can be confident of his promises. I can wait with hope because of what I know he has already done. So, beloved, let's wait. Let's wait with growing expectation. Let's wait more than watchmen for the morning. If the Lord is good and if the Lord does good, then we can wait for him with patience and without worry because hope is rising. All the darkness, every inch of it, all of it will give way to the dawn of a new day. A hope that is eternal. A hope that is eternal in the sacrifice, in the victory, and in the love, the unfailing love of Jesus Christ. Amen.